you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. All right, good morning, everybody. This is our first official day fully in the building as Redeemer Church. Yes. So I want to thank you guys, all of you who have been uh, a huge help in that transition. The last uh, few days have been, well, this last week have been a very, very, very busy week. And um, it has required all of us to make that happen. So thank you. We are really looking forward to seeing how the Lord would use us uh, in this place. And uh, we're already getting really excited about the outreach possibilities that we can have now that we're permanently located somewhere uh, to just see this this area uh, as a place that we can strategically uh, reach out to, but also this building being a place that we can uh, strategically send men and women throughout the world to proclaim the gospel, to plant churches, to be missionaries, to revitalize churches, whatever it is, but to be a hub for mission. So really thankful for all of you uh, coming alongside us in this. We are going to be in the book of John, again, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Still kind of working our way through the first chapter. We'll be here all the, in chapter 1 all the way till next week, and then we'll be on to chapter 2. But we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. John chapter 1, 19 through 34. Now, when you read the Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every, every Gospel has its own flavor, its way of writing, the way that the Spirit inspired the author. And if you were to say, pick up the Gospel of Mark, um, and you start reading through the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice really quickly that he loves the word immediately. Mark doesn't really kind of waste a whole lot of time uh, explaining a lot of things thoroughly. He's just, boom, he's moving on to the next point. The Gospel of Mark is just kind of like a bullet point. This happened, then immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened, and so on and so forth. It's like Mark was just needing to do what he had to do to hurry up and get his thoughts down on paper before he forgot it. That's kind of almost what it feels like. But here with the Apostle John and the Gospel of John, he is guiding the reader. He is carrying the reader Along And as time carries on, uh, John is not saying, okay, this happened and then this thing. What he's doing is he's, he's flipping the pages of time with this marker. And this marker that he would call no other gospel. And this is the theme. As you go from one event to another in the gospel of John, you are constantly reminded there is no other gospel. That's the main theme. That's the main thesis of John's writing here, and so as we move out of this prologue in verses 1 through 18 and move into more of the story now, the narrative, you're seeing the page turn in time with, and now, the no other gospel through the ministry of John the Baptist and in the life of Jesus. And so we'll see that, that in today's message in particular, with John the Baptist, his ministry in this chapter, or in this phase of no other gospel, the testimony of John the Baptist is this. I am not the light, but Jesus is the light. It's the main focus of John the Baptist today. I am not the light, Jesus is the light. And so believing and receiving the gospel is what makes us children of God. We learned that this last week. Faith in Jesus alone. And it is living our lives in obedience to God's word that makes us witnesses, right? We talked about being witnesses. John the Baptist was a witness to the light. But a witness does no good if the witness does not get on the stand and open their mouth and actually testify, right? And it's important for us to hear because we like to think that just being morally good or being on our best behavior is somehow a sufficient enough testimony as Christians. Think about it. 
How will someone gather from you, just kindly opening the door for them, that Jesus is the Son of God? Or, you know, how will a neighbor who may see you picking up trash, loose garbage out of their front yard, somehow pick up on the resurrection of Jesus and its necessity? Maybe, since this is popular in our city, maybe you pay for the person behind you in the drive-thru. How do you think, by your generosity, that will somehow be miraculously translated into a clear explanation of God's grace given by faith through Jesus? It won't. These are kind acts, but look, you don't have to be a Christian to do those things. You can just be a humanitarian, if you will. But there's something distinctively different about us who are children of God, who are witnesses. And so we must be people who boldly and clearly speak about the gospel and also live it out. And so a testimony really is the content of what is witnessed. John the Baptist is a witness to Jesus. He's a witness to the light and his testimony Testimony and witness are pretty synonymous, but the testimony is really the content of what it is he is witnessing. Again, imagine a witness taking the stand in a courtroom. They have to give testimony. They actually have to speak about what it is they witnessed in order for that to be credible evidence, right? In the earlier part of chapter 1, specifically verses 6 through 9, we saw the clear objectives of John the Baptist's ministry. One is that he would testify that he was not the light. And secondly, to bear witness to the light. And third, he did these things for the purpose that all men might believe through him. He's not the light. He bears witness to the light. And he wants people to believe in Jesus. And so today, in these verses, we're going to see two of those objectives, the first two objectives, actually come to fruition over a two-day period. Day one, you'll see John the Baptist testifying to not being the light. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Elijah. We'll see that. And then day two, John will bear witness to the light. There he is. Behold, the Lamb of God. And day three, we will hit next week in verses 35 through 51, as you begin to see the fruit of John's ministry be bore out as disciples are being made and start to follow Jesus. And so as we observe John the Baptist, let us also observe ourselves, the content of our testimony. And so that is going to be the kind of the driving thesis this morning is the content of our testimony. And I'm going to break it down in two very simple categories. Verses 19 through 28. Here it is. That we are not the light. And the second content of our testimony is in 29 through 34. Jesus is the light. We are not the light. Jesus is the light. So 19 through 28, the content of our testimony that we are not the light. Read with me 19 through 23. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Father, I pray that your word would be clearly heard and understood this morning. The message and the hope of the gospel of Jesus would shine brightly on our hearts, on our minds. And Spirit of God, that you would lead us to action to go out and bear witness. Be with us now as we work through this. 
we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So these priests, they come from, they're apparently sent by the Pharisees, is what we'll see here in a minute. And they come from the tribe of Levi. It's kind of an odd thing. Priests are put in charge of really temple worship. And, and the irony here is John the Baptist is a Levite. His dad was a temple priest, right? And so it's strange, and we're not given any details about it, but, you know, the Lord revealed to Zechariah, John's dad, exactly who John the Baptist was, right? He saw a vision in the temple when it was his turn to be in there. And surely the Levites and surely the priests of the day would have known who John the Baptist was. But I guess word didn't really get out. I'm not really sure, but they come here wanting to ask questions, um, wanting to pry and understand. I'm not sure. It doesn't really seem like an evil motive here. Maybe just a genuine uh, inquiry. But here we have these, these priests are here inquiring on the behalf of Pharisees who this man is. And so here we begin. Verse 19, this is the transition. So here's the testimony. Verses 1 through 18. Here's who the Word is. The Word made flesh. Here's what you can expect out of the whole book of the Gospel of John. And now we begin the testimony of John the Baptist. And here it is, the verbal, really the verbal content of John's witness before the Jews. And so here's what John is saying. And let me kind of break it down this way. John has the, here's the, here's who I am not testimony. And then the very short, here is who I am testimony. And so the, here's who I am not testimony of John the Baptist. First and foremost, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I am not the anointed one. I am not the one you've been waiting for. And this would be something that would be expected of first century Palestinian Jews. There has been a long-awaited expectation for the Messiah to come. And so John was would expect this sort of question. And so the Christ meaning Messiah or anointed one here. This would be the one who comes to deliver Israel from um, the world. And in particular, there's an expectation of this. This long-awaited Savior, this ruler who would victoriously overcome the pagan world, or in this case, Rome. So they're waiting for their king to victoriously show back up. John the Baptist says, yeah, that's not me. Well, then, are you Elijah? And Elijah was a prophet that we saw all the way back in the book of 2 Kings chapter 2. He was taken up. He did not die. He was taken up by the Lord. And he was prophesied about very specifically in the book of Malachi, but also in Isaiah 40, which is a passage we just read not too long ago, that this Elijah would come back and prepare a way for the Lord. He would go into the wilderness and he would create straight paths for God, for his people. And look, this is to be expected because in the Old Testament, at least the priests have this right. They know that before the Messiah comes, Elijah is going to come first. And they get that from the book of Malachi, chapter 4. Let me read this to you. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. We're talking 400 plus years before Jesus even shows up on the scene. The prophet Malachi was given this word from the Lord. And here we begin to see it being fulfilled in John the Baptist. So there's difficulty here. Because John the Baptist is the Elijah spoken about in the Old Testament. Jesus even attests to that. But he's sitting here saying, no, no, that's not me. I'm not him. And this is a very difficult thing. And there's a lot of opinions on why John the Baptist would write this way or speak this way. And maybe one is perhaps they're thinking that a literal Elijah is going to come back. And so John the Baptist is responding in a very literal fashion going, yeah, I'm not I'm not literally Elijah. And there's no other commentary here. 
But what we do know is this. There's a lot of things we don't know here. But what we do know is John is not denying who he is. He's not denying who he is because, first of all, he knows clearly who he is not. John the Baptist is not having some identity crisis here. He is immediately going out, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, and eventually I'm not the prophet as well. He's going to give an answer in verse 23 that he is the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, which comes from Isaiah 40, which is a complementary prophetic passage about the forerunner, about John the Baptist. D.A. Carson gives the explanation that while Jesus openly speaks of John the Baptist as the one who comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah, John did not detect as much significance in his own ministry as Jesus did. That's what D.A. says. He further says that other explanations are possible, but in D.A.'s judgment, they are less likely. So given kind of the context and the way that John the Baptist holds himself and positions himself, he is very interested in keeping Jesus or the light into clear focus and keeping him completely out of focus. He must increase, I must decrease. And so, no, I'm not Elijah. Well, are you the prophet? And his answer, no. Well, who's the prophet? The prophet is a reference back to the time of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses, at the, towards the end of his life, if you will, um, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is another messianic um, prophecy in the Old Testament. Moses was the greatest prophet of all time, right? And he's saying there's going to be a greater prophet who comes after me. And it's fascinating because it's just another creative way of asking, are you the Messiah? And even though John the Baptist already said, I'm not him. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. Are you the prophet? No, I am not the prophet. I am not the one you are ultimately to be looking for. Okay, so who are you? So here's the I am. So here are the things I'm not. I'm not Elijah. I'm not uh, the Christ. I'm not the prophet. But here's who I am. I am the voice. As Isaiah 40 says in verse uh, 3 through 5, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah writes in a time, long, long time before this, whenever the northern kingdom was in threat of being captured by Assyria. It would be another 150 years later after Isaiah prophesies that Judah would then be captured by Babylon and then ultimately Jerusalem destroyed. And in this time, Isaiah is prophesying about the Messiah. And so Isaiah's prophecy here is about a road that goes through the wilderness that would be plainly laid out for the exiles, the Israelites, to return home back to Jerusalem. And this has its fulfillment in Christ as the Israel, right? Jesus fulfills Israel in himself, that John the Baptist comes and prepares a way for Jesus to come in to Jerusalem. And so Isaiah 40, chapters 40 through 66, are really just a, an announcement of good news. And so here is John the Baptist fulfilling this. I have good news. I'm preparing the way. And then it falls into more of messianic expectation when you get into Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant, the one who would come, who would be crushed for our transgressions, the one who would be pierced for our iniquities, the one who would die ultimately on the cross. 
And towards the end of Isaiah, we have that future eschatological hope that Christ, that this Messiah is going to come back and we will live in a new heaven and a new earth. So John here is a forerunner, is one who is preparing the way, knowing who it is that is coming after him. One who is going to save his people from their sins. He is going to be the one who takes the exiles back home to that new heaven, that new earth. And so if John the Baptist verbally claims he's not the light, which he does, then what do his actions tell us? Verse 24. Now they, that is the the Levites and the priests, had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So the Pharisees apparently had sent these uh, Levites or these priests to come ask these questions. And the Pharisees are really a pious group of Jews who formed about a 175 to 163 BC. They stood up against to an, uh, an opposing government, and so they became more popular. But they ultimately, as Carson says, the Pharisees were extremely scrupulous about observing every minute detail of the law of God as they understood it, and were engaged in establishing an oral tradition about how the law was to be obeyed. So they became very focused on every jot and tittle, if you will, every marking in the Bible, making sure that they didn't miss anything. But then they became, really, innovators. Innovators with their oral tradition, learning how to engage culture and new problems in society with really imagination. And maybe in other words, they would become the relevant relevant pastors or the relevant religious leaders of the day, trying to think of new strategic ways to engage what was going on in the world. And so here they have, here they have John the Baptist, preaching this message of repentance. And so they're wanting to know exactly what is going on. And this would ultimately, this framework of thinking for the Pharisees might be to their detriment, as we'll see, as Jesus comes as the word of God to fulfill the very written word of God. And he doesn't have to come in being innovative or relevant about anything. He comes to fulfill exactly that And he is not bound by or shaped by, that I'm talking about Jesus, any sort of tradition. And that will ultimately mess with the Pharisaical mind as Jesus will not match up to their way of thinking and practicing. So, Jesus, or, so John here is baptizing. So basically, these Levites, these priests are wanting to understand, okay, your words are this, that you're not this, so then why are you baptizing? It doesn't seem like these two things should go hand in hand. And this is the action of John's witness before the world. John baptized with the purpose of calling men to repentance. That is necessary in order to receive and to believe in the word made flesh. To become a child of God, you need to repent of your sin and believe in the one who has come. And so repentance and faith is the only way the people could make way for the king who was among them. And that's the funny thing is, he's there, and yet they're still blind to him. And so without repentance and faith, they would be trapped in darkness, void of the true light. Not able to see him, though he's standing right in front of them. And so John, the Baptist, the forerunner, calls upon the world to check their hearts To turn to the Lord. And so he baptizes, calling people to repentance. This practice wasn't necessarily out of left field. This is something that would 
that had been happening in uh, certain segments of Judaic tradition. So when John is doing this, it's not just something completely foreign. But they understand that the significance of baptism is a really a symbolizing of a washing away, right, of a coming out in a new life before the world. And John will not only baptize folks around them, calling to repentance, but he will baptize Jesus as well. And not because Jesus is a sinner and needs to repent of his sin, but because this baptism would be the inauguration of his ministry. Up to this point, Jesus has just been living a normal life as a Jew in the land. And now he comes in these last few years of his life to, to make it to the cross, to fulfill what he was destined to do. That is, die for our sins. And so then the act of a baptism is, is a testimony. John testifies, this baptism I'm baptizing you with is only water. There's nothing magical here about what I'm doing. But it's a testimony of the salvation to come. If I could read into this a little bit more. And so ultimately what we have here is that John is saying, without it being said on the pages here, there is a baptizer that is greater than me. And he is coming. And he is among you. And yet you do not know him. You have no idea who he is. Remember early on in the first chapter here that Jesus came to his own and his own did not recognize him. So this means that the Jews do not know the very Messiah, the very Christ, the prophet they're supposed to know. They are not actually aware of who he actually is. They're believing some other interpretation of who he's supposed to be. And yet he is standing right there in front of him. And John the Baptist is going, you don't know him. And he comes, Jesus, after this preparation. And John exclaims, I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. That statement is extraordinary humility. Extraordinary humility. Stooping as low as a slave who finds themselves unworthy to untie the shoes of their master. And to be clear, Jesus does not lord it over John, saying, kiss the ring, bow down and untie my shoes. John sees who he is, which is not the light, in direct contrast to the light, and understands he is not worthy. What is the content of your testimony? What's the content of your testimony? Who are you not? Who are you not? John knew very clear who he was not. He knew he was not the light. We must understand we are not the light. We are not the answers. We are not the ones. And Trust me, I, I say this knowing that we live in a rock star mentality world where we all want to be popular, we all want to be known, we want everybody to watch us, we want everyone to see our sermons, we want everybody to know about us and see us. But that is not the goal. That is not the objective. Think about how John the Baptist did not take any opportunity to drop names give attention to his ministry methods as though they're the best ones, or even draw attention to his own appearance. He didn't care what he looked like. He didn't care what he smelled like. He didn't care what he looked like. All he cared about was that God's word would be obeyed and proclaimed and rightly understood. And at the end of the day, when he has to stand before God, he can stand as one saying, look, I did everything that you asked me to do for your glory. And so we see a decreasing of John and an increasing of Jesus. But what about you? Is there a decrease of you and an increase of Jesus in your testimony, in who you are? Or is everything that comes out of your mouth 
always about you, your problems, your kids, your job, your spouse, or whatever it is. What is your testimony? What is the content of it? Knowing who you are not should not lead to some self-deprecating, depressing state and discouragement. It should lead us to a point of being encouraged, of seeing, wow, I really am not an all-sufficient Savior. I'm really not a good Savior. You really don't want to follow me. You want to follow Jesus. And so a clear identity of who we are and who we are not leads us to a sound, active testimony. When John the Baptist says, I am the voice, have you thought, you can't see a voice. You hear a voice. Yeah, John is physically present. He's physically doing baptisms, but he is opening his mouth, speaking the truth. And that's what a voice is. Are you then, church, a voice heard testifying to Jesus? Or are you maybe just a hidden act of kindness, hoping it will be miraculously translated into a gospel message? I do a lot of nice things, a lot of good things. Surely that'll be enough. I don't think so. Are you a voice? And look, testifying is not complicated. We, we make it to be something that is very complicated or it should be left up to the professionals or the guy up on the stage, right? The holy man, the pastor, he should be the one. And look, the Pharisees in the time of John and Jesus here, they were innovators, right? But as disciples, we don't have to be innovators when it comes to testifying. We go, we tell the good news, We live out the good news. We don't have to make the gospel relevant. We don't have to come up and granted, I'm not saying throw away all strategies and efforts. I'm not saying that's all garbage. What I'm getting at is we overcomplicate how simple it is to just open our mouths and tell people that Jesus is the son of God, that he died for our sins. And this is just a reminder to us all that the great commission man for all of us, all of us who are deemed children of the living God, right? If you have received and believed and you are now a child of God, you are responsible for the great commission. And so like John the Baptist, we are called to make disciples. We are to baptize them. We are to teach them all that Jesus has commanded. So some of us may need to consider how it is our responsibility as a disciple to call others to repentance and faith and then lead them to an active testimony of baptism. Maybe you guys are waiting for me or some special sign from God to be obedient. Maybe that's what you're doing. But your life should reflect a desire to see others to follow Jesus and a desire For them to actively follow Jesus. And so are you actively sharing the testimony of Jesus? Are you actively doing that? And if not, how come? Why not? Are you actively leading others to the waters of baptism? Faithful obedience. Are you actively teaching others the commands of Jesus, opening the pages of Scripture, reading God's Word, teaching one another the commands of God's Word. Paul tells us that we are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Thinking about John the Baptist, considering himself as low as a slave to Jesus, unworthy to untie his shoes. Do you consider yourself a slave to righteousness, seeing that you are not worthy to stoop down and untie the shoes of Jesus. All the while knowing He is not lording anything over you. He's not demanding anything of you. He's not saying, if you don't do this, then I won't give you my grace and love. He's not doing that. 
And the reason I ask that question is because it impacts our posture. It impacts our actions. It impacts our testimony to the world. It keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves. I think we all have seen enough people thinking too highly of themselves in the church. It always keeps in right perspective that Jesus is king. But also at the same time, we know that our life as a servant is a mirroring reflection of Jesus, who is the suffering servant. He leads the way on what it means to be a servant. He leads the way on what it means to lay down your life. And so, is your witness one of humility and service, or is it one of arrogance and pride? And so, and what exactly is the content of our testimony? If we are not the light, then what is the content? And it is this, Jesus is the light. Verses 29 through 34, the content of our testimony is this, that Jesus is the light. So now we are, the sun is set, the sun is risen, day number two. Here we have this scene, verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming down toward him, that is John, saw Jesus coming down toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for the purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Gospel of John here doesn't go into great detail about the baptism of Jesus. It doesn't even hit on it. Just alluding to it, kind of talking around it. And so this day is a day after, most likely, that Jesus was baptized. And here's kind of how that story went down. Let me read out of Matthew 3. John says, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Here in the Gospel of John, we don't have that account, right? But we know what is going on from Matthew's Gospel. But John the Baptist here, in these verses, does give a couple disclaimers, and they're the same disclaimer. One is in verse 31, and one is in verse 33. And here it is. I myself did not know him. If this couldn't be any more complicated... Okay, so you're not Elijah and you don't know who Jesus is? Like, thanks for making this really easy on me as a reader. But here's what they are not. These are not denials, but they are clear distinctions between roles. Even to the point where John is testifying, like, this is not a staged event. I didn't call you out here in the wilderness and then at the right cue... Jesus comes popping out and I I conned you in all to believing that he is the Messiah. That's not what's going on. John is a human given instruction by God. And perhaps he knew Jesus, right? He was his cousin. Perhaps he knew he was the Messiah, right? But he wasn't going to be for sure about that until 
God's word would be fulfilled right before him. And obviously we see God has spoken to John saying, here's how you're going to know who the Messiah is. And so John is faithfully going out in the wilderness, baptizing, leading and waiting until that Messiah comes and fulfills what God said would happen. And so as soon as Jesus came to be baptized, John instantly, instantly recognized him as the Messiah. And so here we have in these verses, John the Baptist saying, oh, let me tell you about what happened yesterday. Let me tell you about the light. Look, I'm not the light. Let me tell you about the light. This Jesus, behold him. He is the Lamb of God. And this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this lamb, it's, it's kind of confusing and difficult to understand exactly where John the Baptist is picking up this language exactly. But it's possible this is a reference to the same lamb that we see in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, which says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Talking about this lamb, Jesus, in the story of Easter, who would make it to the cross and he would die. His blood would be shed for the remission of sins. And so this lamb of Isaiah 53 is the lamb who would endure the cross, who would take on the full wrath of God on behalf of sinners. And so here John the Baptist seems to understand the Old Testament, understanding when the Messiah comes, here is the trajectory of his life. When I'm going to baptize him now, but he's going to ultimately die for our sins. And so he is one, John says, behold, he is one who ranks before me, verse 30. He is the one who is before me because he's eternal. He is the word of God. He is the word made flesh. He is the creator of all things. He is the light of the world. And I will come before him, but trust me, he ranks before me. Verse 31, behold, he is the one who is to be revealed to all Israel. Jesus doesn't come to be hidden, to be kind of like pushed off to the side, but he comes fully before all men for all time saying, this is who I am. The problem isn't that Jesus isn't present. The problem is our hearts or the hearts of the people are darkened and they can't see the light that is right before them. And this one that he testifies to is the one that the spirit would descend upon and remain. Verse 33. The Holy Spirit of God. We have the working of the Trinity. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit comes eternally dwelling upon Jesus. Remaining with Him. Going to empower Him throughout His ministry. Because Jesus cannot in His own power, if you will, in human flesh, take on the cross. He must have the power of God residing in him to endure the cross. And John the Baptist says, God told me that the one of whom the Spirit falls upon, that's the Messiah. And he's going to be the one who then in turn baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. And so, in the same eternal dwelling that the Spirit has upon Jesus, so it will be with those whom Jesus baptizes. And He is, therefore then, the Son of God. I mean, if you look, we're in chapter 1, and we have like a half dozen titles of Jesus already. We, we know Him as the Word. We know Him as a Creator, as the Light. right? We know Him as the Son of God. This is Amazing. It often takes in the other gospels several chapters before you even get into this. But John, the apostle, just dives in right away. This is the Son of God. 
And we're reminded of that back in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 1. That He is the only Son from the Father. Meaning the one and only, the unique one. There is no one like Him. He is the chosen one. The chosen suffering servant. The chosen Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He is the light. Galatians 4 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Church, look at who you are not. And look at who you are. Look at who God says you are. Look at what Jesus has done. Look at what Jesus says about Himself. What the Word of God says about Jesus. The work that He's accomplished on your behalf. And then ask yourself, how could I possibly not tell anyone about the gospel of Jesus? Why would I ever keep this news to myself? Why would I ever just hold that in? Look, church, we are no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer condemned. And so we can go and sin no more. We no longer have to feel the weighty condemnation of our sin anymore because Jesus paid the price. So instead, we can be free from our sin. We can live righteous lives. We are sons and daughters of God. We are children of God. We were bought with a price. And it it gets even better. We're not just children, but we have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that fell upon Jesus has now come and fallen upon us. And now we are walking around living, breathing temples of the living God. So the same Spirit that fell upon Jesus and empowered Him in His ministry, it's actually the same Spirit that was upon John the Baptist, is the same Spirit that is in you, in me, that empowers us to go and to make disciples, to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. None of us can do that in our own power, in our own strength. And we don't have to fear man, because we have God residing in us, so we must go. And look, here's the, here's the hope we have. The Spirit that also raised Christ from the dead will also raise us with Him forever. We have a true and living hope inside of us. What is it that we are afraid of? What is it that concerns us? And so we are heirs. We're owners in the kingdom of God. This is the spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. When Jesus comes back, it's cashing in and we have our new heaven, our new earth. It is ours forever. We get to behold Jesus, the Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world. And so you can see the excitement of John the Baptist. Why he's saying, behold, let me tell you, I'm not the light, but let me tell you about the light. You can see that excitement build up into build up in him, in his speech. But what about you? Does this even excite you? Does this do anything for your soul? Does the gospel even compel you or move you? Or are we just bored with it? And I'm not talking about a manufactured excitement. Right? I'm not talking about that, but one that really stirs your soul. You know that even in the thick of things, when you've done the worst, right? you know that Jesus has paid it. That there is grace upon grace as we learned. Right? As we learned from the book of Lamentations, His mercies are new every morning. Look, you can never out God. He's just ladling grace on us like biscuits and gravy, baby. Right? He's just pouring it on us always. Some of you may just start salivating, and I apologize. Does it compel you to lay down your life? To lay down everything to follow Him? Are you willing 
to give it all up for him. And look, John the Baptist anticipated the day that his faith would come sight. And when Jesus appeared before him, man, he was pumped. You and I ought to be anticipating the day when our faith will be turned into sight. And that we will be called then back home with our Savior, with our God. So do you live your life as a testimony to Jesus as the light? Is your life a testimony to Jesus? Do you tell others there is a Jesus who is coming? Behold, He's coming. When Jesus returns, let's assume He returned in our lifetime before we pass away, would you be caught off guard? Go, Oh, whoa, I didn't expect that. John the Baptist wasn't caught off guard. He knew God's word. He was grounded in God's word. He faithfully obeyed God's word. And when Jesus showed up, he goes, ah, there is the word. And when Jesus shows up, are we going to be caught off guard, blinded by the light? Or will we be ready, anticipating and receiving the light in full? So church, there is no other gospel. As we flip the pages of our life, What is the theme that is carried through? What is that theme? What is the testimony of your life, both in words and also in your actions? For the Apostle John, the theme, again, as we flip the pages, is there's no other gospel. No other gospel. And in this passage today, in this story of no other gospel, we see that Jesus, John says, I'm not the light, but Jesus is the light. So in the chapter of your life, what is the testimony of your life? What are the words? Are you going to perhaps just be no more than a humanitarian who does nice things with hopes that someone might grasp the gospel? Or are you going to be no more than an intellectual who shares the knowledge Without any sort of action? Or are you going to be a witness who testifies both in word and deed of the gospel of Jesus? A witness who will boldly take the stand. The world is dying. They're dying in their sins. And we have the hope residing in us. We have the greatest news in the world. And so it should be our joy, not our duty, to go and share the good news of the Lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. So let us then go from this place with the content of our testimony being, we are not the light, but Jesus is the light.